This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 5, Episode 9. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network, brought to you by Excess Sites. Today is Wednesday, February 16th, 2022. As of the recording of this episode, I am your humble host, Riley Bowman, joined by our fabulous co-host and producer, Matthew Marister. Hello, and I'd just like to add that even in your sickness, you sound uh, radio ready. So good oh, job excellent. on that. If anything, the sickness makes the voice lower and more radio awesome. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Somebody's got their bass turned way up too too much, and they're like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) What are you guys doing to me? All right. So today's episode is legislative updates. we got a ton of important legislative news and updates for you that we need to cover a bunch of important state-level stories and, and some national level stuff as well. So uh, hang on, we're going to go through this as quickly and as efficiently as we can, but still do it justice and cover all of the important stuff as best as we can. Um, You should know that right now we are in that season where state legislatures are going gangbusters with respect to gun legislation, both on the pro side and on the anti side. So uh, if you are not paying attention, if you are not engaged this is your wake-up call to make sure that you are paying attention, that you are engaged because stuff is happening and it's, a lot of times it's happening rapid fire. For instance, I, you know, I keep pretty close tabs on a lot of this stuff. One of our stories we're going to talk about here today is out of the state of Washington and I did not hear about it until it was already said and done in the Washington State Senate and that is a bill to... Uh, uh, restrict magazine capacities in Washington. So it only has to get passed through the House now at this point and go to the governor's desk if it makes it through the House. And so I'm just giving you, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about that story here some more in a bit, just giving you a little bit of a, of a hint that stuff is moving very fast. And there are some very motivated people out there that want to restrict our Second Amendment for all of us law-abiding folks. So you need to be involved. You need to be engaged. And part of the reason we do this episode is to make that a little bit easier for you so you know a little bit about, about what's going on. And just because something isn't happening in your state, but it's happening elsewhere, that's a wake-up call as well to know that, hey, that's a tactic that may very well be coming to your street, your neighborhood, your county, city, state very soon if you're not paying attention. Absolutely. Today's episode sponsor brought to you by CCW Safe. CCWSafe.com is their website. We want to encourage you to have some sort of legal protection in place. You know, you have insurance for your car, insurance for your house, or if you rent, you have renter's insurance. At least you should. If you don't, well, fix yourself because that's a problem. I have a friend that was not insured with renter's insurance and had their apartment go up in flames. That's a bad day. Anyway, you have insurance for those things. You should have a coverage program in place to cover you in the event you need significant legal assistance in the event you have to use deadly or physical force of some kind, especially if it involves your gun. So check out CCW Safe for what I think is the best coverage in the industry. 
mostly because, well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the big ones for me is the people that back that company up and the way they run things. And a lot of it's behind the scenes. You don't even see it. And I, what I'm here to tell you is that they are some of the best people on the planet and they run a top ship company that truly, truly believes in their members. Consider joining CCW Safe today and save 10% by using the coupon code uh, or discount code CC Podcast. Guardian Nation members save even more. Or maybe it's, is that a 15% discount? 10 or 15? 10. I don't remember. Either way, <laughs> you're going to want to take advantage of that. Good. I'm not out there plugging in the, the discount code every day. Uh, I should refer to the notes. They're not in the notes. What the heck, producer? <laughs> Your I figured you knew. <laughs> Just kidding. It's a really good discount. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Guardian Nation members, I do know for a fact, save 20%, and that is not insignificant. Okay, so uh, if you're not a member of Guardian Nation, you might want to check that out as well. Also, today's episode sponsored, brought to you by Gunfighter Gun Oil. Uh, the website for them is gunfighteroil.com. And uh, they are just fabulous people as well, making a great product I've been using now for some time and couldn't be couldn't be happier with it. I think I maybe talked about this recently, but I'll talk about some more about how I used their lubricant in my guns in a very couple of cold classes in Texas and Alabama over the last couple of weeks and never had any issues, no hiccups whatsoever with my guns running. My guns were already dirty. Uh, so usually dirty and cold and thicker lubricant is a recipe for disaster. And with Gunfighter Gun Oil, it was not a problem whatsoever. So check out Gunfighter Gun Oil today. Go to gunfighteroil.com. Uh, check out their full lineup of products. I use it all. The, the cleaner, the lubricant, the grease. I use grease where I want it to stay in place. Like on my P320, I put a little dab of grease on the disconnector. Uh, and also on the, uh, the 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 striker safety lever and stuff like that, where you want to, you want that lubricant to stay in place, and use uh, oil and other parts of the gun. So good products, and they work ex- incredibly well. Again, gunfighteroil.com. Let's get into our legislative stories now at this time. So first up, we have a story from the AP, the Associated Press. And this is this is a big one. This is seriously, um, this is a problematic harbinger of what could come in the future. Because for years now, there's been legislation, or not legislation, but uh, a lawsuit working its way through the court systems. And first it was dead, and then it wasn't, and then it was dead, and then it wasn't. And uh, basically, anti-gun judges from as i perceive it have allowed this to continue moving forward and what that is is a lawsuit against remington the manufacturer of the rifle used in the sandy hook massacre back in 2012 that was that's crazy to think that was uh, almost 10 years ago uh, later this year it'll be, be 10 years i mean obviously that was a terrible terrible event something that nobody wishes happened okay not even remington and you know, back in I think 2005 or 2006, there was a, a law passed that uh, uh, essentially provides immunity to gun manufacturers in how they are ultimately used sometimes in commissions of crimes. Uh, I think that's a, a law that's important to have, to be honest with you. Okay. I know there's people who probably dis- disagree with us, although I think most of our audience understands why that is important to have because we could very quickly sue our gun manufacturers out of existence. 
uh, with that not being in place. So what we have here is the Sandy Hook family settled for $73 million with gunmaker Remington. Got a comment from Elke on Facebook saying he, that it wasn't that Remington settled, it's their insurance company that did. I'm not sure that really matters in the grand scheme of things. Um, but it is, it is a lesson learned perhaps for gun manufacturers out there to consider the, uh, uh, the, uh, insurance that they have, you know, backing their companies up. Right. But here's the problem. Okay. So this was allowed to proceed under the, everything about this case was based around an advertisement that Remington ran for their, for their rifle, that said, where was that? I had it here. Uh, Consider your man card reissued. It was just, you know, kind of edgy, catchy graphics with this, with this phrase, consider your man card reissued. And the argument was that that appealed to at risk young males, such as the perpetrator of the Sandy Hook shooting. And um, that, that, that it's advertising like that, that led to this massacre, which is, complete bogus um not only that like because that kid didn't even buy that rifle his mom did the, she the, bought it she the, owned it she shot it i mean she middle age too but like the, yeah the middle age buy mom. that rifle because of this ad i'm pretty right. sure you know so sorry go ahead matthew no, no i was just gonna inject the middle-aged mom got her man card back apparently that <laughs> that's what drew, drew her to the right the rifle. right but this was allowed to proceed. Uh, the judge ultimately ruled that this fit under an exception to the uh, to the to the immunity law. I PLC, can't remember what, the, what that PLCCA. Called right now. Go PLCCA ahead. PLCCA. Yeah. Protection and lawful commerce and commerce and arms. I believe. Yeah. I, I I've said it before, but you know the brain's not functioning incredibly <laughs> well right now with the. Uh, the, the immense pressure in my head due to my cold that I have. But anyway, yeah, that, that's my excuse. <laughs> but uh, so, um, again, the problem here is, is that I believe a precedent has now been set and that we are about to see other similar cases brought to the courts uh, against gun manufacturers in other acts of crime. Yeah. Uh, and so that is concerning and uh, it could be a big problem for this industry. So, yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, if, if, if you can get around suing the company that, you know, you, you want to sue the, the company, but instead, because of the law, you sue the insurance company that protects that company from other, you know, legitimate lawsuits and things like that. And this apparently is a legitimate lawsuit. Um, and other insurance companies are going to start thinking twice before they insure firearm companies. So that puts a burden on if now they have to carry twice as much insurance or the number of insurance companies that will provide insurance to gun manufacturers is limited. You see where it's, where it goes and, and how it's, it's squeezing the industry. Um, so it's it's a big case. I I I think I agree with you. It's a huge huge case. Yeah, yeah. Good thoughts coming in on the social media here today, uh, Facebook and on YouTube as well. Um, yeah, uh, 
like Pedro says, it matters as now a knife, a car, a truck manufacturer can be held accountable. Now, I would say that some of the manufacturers can be held accountable for various things already and have been held accountable for things. Obviously, a, a car manufacturer that did certain things knowingly and, and you know like for instance there was a whole like was it uh volkswagen got in trouble for uh falsifying and claiming wrong numbers with respect to their fuel efficiency there was another manufacturer that got in trouble for uh supposedly having certain safety measures in place and they actually didn't and you know so so that i get and i understand that but that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about somebody that's in good faith making a a, a product uh and, and you know the the, the uh comparison is more like what mason here says where if someone gets hit by a drunk driver we then go and you know sue the alcohol manufacturer because you know they provided the i guess the alcohol that influenced that person to uh commit that that terrible act but anyway so um and elke here man these good comments coming in he says related question alcohol ads always show guys with hot girls and i never experienced that can i sue too <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, LT. Uh, I'd say the more direct comparison is that you see ads that make, you know, drinking, uh, you know, very, very desirable. And so therefore I should go drink. Right. And then I get too drunk and then I drive myself home because I make a bad decision. And then I kill somebody on the way. Like, I don't know. That, that's, that is kind of how this looks to me. Now, somebody out there will probably say, I just said something wrong and then I'm wrong. And then my opinion on that's wrong. But, uh, but the point is suing gun manufacturers over how a gun was used in the commission of a crime is a is a non-starter for the industry and it could be very very damaging so we want to bring this to your attention and uh, I don't know what we can do to change this but boy we need to this is just another piece of evidence in a series of evidences of what the anti-gunners really what their end goal is which is ban all guns kill all the gun manufacturers, <clears throat> not literally kill them, you know, kill the companies and uh, make guns go away, even though guns never will truly go away because criminals will still have them. And uh, yeah, anyway, moving on, Matthew, why don't you talk to us about this uh, story from the NRA ILA gun control group hopes to smear us firearms industry with new website. This new website is called the gun store transparency project. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And of course, it's the person behind it or the group behind it is is the Brady uh, anti-gun group that, you know, does most of this money towards these big these big things like this. But uh, basically, uh, this company filed a uh, Freedom of Information Act with the ATF to obtain the ATF's records of their inspections of FFLs. FFLs need to be inspected on a multitude of different things. Um, and Basically, you know, they're inspecting whether you filled out every blank, whether you file paperwork in the correct manner, um, if, you know, there's some clerical things and then there's some legitimate like, hey, you're selling firearms to people without providing uh, background checks. Right. But what this gun, um, this website attempts to do by taking this information that the ATF gave them of their inspections is cherry picking out like. Um, well, there are X many violations and this shows that gun stores are, are not 
you know, doing the right thing. They're violating the law. And this is, this is the big problem. Um, and they don't put the, the, the violations into context and they kind of, um, you know, they kind of superimpose different things where you come away. And this is, this is one of those things we talked about it last, I think last week or a couple of weeks ago about how statistics can be can be fed in a certain way and you come away from reading this um, as though, you know, all these violations are all incidents where gun man, gu- uh, gun stores are just giving guns away without record checks and people are failing record or background checks and they're still giving them. And, and many of them, the vast majority of these violations are clerical things where, you know, a, a box wasn't filled in properly or something like that. Right. Um, in the show notes, I link to the ATF uh, website where they show like the number of inspections and the types of violations and warnings and warning letters. And, and you know, most of these were not um, egregious where where the, the FFL was having their license revoked because it was such a, you know, it was a criminal act or something. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing is, is that when when people see stuff like this as as is published on the uh on this new uh uh gun store transparency project site that they see this as being evidence that there's all kinds of dealers you know there's a there's a significant number of dealers that are doing illegal things to get guns out there in the hands of criminals and on the streets at least that's that's the impression people are are led to have and certainly there are bad apples in the bunch there are bad dealers out there and where those are discovered they're obviously dealt with and done away with but uh most of the problems most of the things that come up with atf's um so-called violations and as it mentioned here the most common violation is known as a failure to complete forms as prescribed and sometimes is as simple as missing signatures or dates now there's no doubt that those forms we're primarily talking about 4473s that dealers fill out as a result of a transfer of a firearm there's also other forms too form ones form form uh yeah form ones i think are, are very common dealer form form fours things of that nature that are that are, that are uh for the transfer of or, or purchase of uh, uh, NFA controlled items and so forth. But um, it, it, that those, it's important that that documentation is done correctly. Okay. But when it's, you know, a, a simple clerical error, which certainly can happen in, you know, to just about anybody, right. Um, that's not treated at the same level as failing to do a required background check on the purchase of a gun. Right. Uh, so you have to put this in in context and what I know from talking to dealer friends of mine, to FFLs that I know, and there certainly are exceptions, but by and large, the ATF agents that come and do inspections of like records and things are generally pretty helpful and that they even say, uh, again, there are exceptions, but that by and large, the, the ATF itself bills itself as being like we're there to help you the dealer complete this stuff correctly uh 
there was a comparison in this article, I think, about, yeah, to some degree, the process is similar to a student's report card, which can help with self-assessment and identify areas in need of improvement. It's not about kicking the, the, the student out of school or getting rid of the dealer or coming down hard on them because they made some big boo-boo. It's, it's that, hey, you know what? You, you didn't dot some I's and cross some T's, and we're just pointing out areas for improvement because we want you to do the best you can. And that the dealers I know that have had little corrections to make in records, make those corrections, uh, uh, do the things ATF asked them to do, and they learn from that and they get better. Okay. But so when we talk about a website here, that's basically their goal is to paint dealers in this really negative light. Um, that's, that's a whole other thing. And so that's why we're mentioning and sharing this story with you here today. So just another tactic in the, on the of the anti-gun side here to uh, smear the firearms industry. So let's go now to California, although this is a Ninth Circuit uh, federal court uh, uh, ruling. So this will apply to all of the Ninth Circuit and not only just California, although I'm not sure if there's as much a need going forward as there was in the past. Uh, although things, things, you know, you never know what could happen here. Now the, the issue here is this case was known as the McDougal versus County of Ventura. Uh, by the way, this is published on california.concealedcarry.com. This was actually written by our illustrious <laughs> co-host and producer, Matthew Marister. Um, McDougal, the plaintiffs here challenged the County of Ventura um, for Number one, preventing people from buying guns and ammunition. And number two, forced closures of firearms and ammunition re retailers and shooting ranges upon threat of prosecution. The argument being that this violated the Second and Fourteenth Amendments. And this wound its way through the courts. And essentially, the short of the long here is, and I'll let you expand if there's anything else you want to throw out there, Matthew, is that it has been found that, in fact, the county of Ventura, of Ventura did, in fact, violate uh, 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 constitutional protections in shutting down gun sh shops, dealers, and ranges during COVID and not preventing and, and not allowing people to be able to exercise their second amendment rights in purchasing firearms and ammunition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's, if you have a chance, uh, check out the, the, um, the, our actual article. Cause I, I put a couple quotes from, uh, the, the, um, ruling from, uh, the judge, but, um, I'll just, I'll, there's a couple in there. I'll just hit the first one and, and you guys can go and dig in into the article to see the next one. But, uh, it, he says, ultimately the issue boils down to the county's designation of essential versus non-essential businesses and activities while court should afford some measure of defense to local policy determinations, the enshrinement of constitutional rights necessarily takes certain policy choices off the table. Heller, uh, when a government completely bans all acquisition of firearms and ammunition by closing gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges, it's one of those off-limit policy choices squarely contemplated by Heller. Um, the order cannot satisfy strict scrutiny. They did not uh, show that this was essential or the, the uh, you know, in, in an abundance of uh, 
you know, evidence that this this was necessary. Uh, stripping these these uh, rights was necessary in order to stop COVID or public health or whatever. So, um, yeah. So g- get in there, read, read the other comments because they're pretty powerful uh, from the judges of the Ninth Circuit, which has made some favorable uh, decisions recently. So pretty interesting. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Let's go now to fox59.com reports. And this is, oh, wait, I guess we did cover all of our, what we consider national level stories here. So my apologies. We're, we're now moving over to the state level, if you will. So this, for, this next story comes out of Indiana. And the title of this one is Law Enforcement Discuss Potential Impact of Indiana's Permitless Carry Legislation. So. Obviously, this is a good thing. Okay, we're proponents of of constitutional carry, and we've seen more and more states move this direction. I believe there's 21 states that have constitutional carry. There's an additional, I think, four states that that essentially have no requirement as far as obtaining a permit. So there's like 25 states, half the country, where you don't have to really do anything to carry concealed except for maybe in four of those states you got to actually go and apply or you know apply for a permit and by that mean like there's no training requirement or anything like that nothing too arduous maybe you pay a a minimal fee and then get your permit uh in constitutional carry states it's assumed that you just if you're a law-abiding citizen you just carry concealed right because that's constitutional carry you have the right to possess that gun the right to carry that gun no permit required Indiana is looking at a bill that would allow uh, Indianans, Hoosiers, to uh, carry handguns without a permit age 18 and older. It's very similar to a lot of other states' uh, constitutional carry bills. This bill passed the House earlier this month, is headed to the Indiana Senate. And I just wanted to highlight something here that I thought was interesting, Matthew, because the perspective here is law enforcement that are voicing Mm. their opinion about why they think constitutional carry is no bueno. And here we have the deputy chief of the Greenfield Police Department, Chuck McMichael, saying, without permitting in place, there's really no easy way for us to be able to determine whether somebody is allowed to carry a weapon or not. (laughs) And I kind of chuckle at this because all I can think is, how complicated is this? You, You, as a law enforcement officer, you interact with somebody, whatever context that is. And in the course of that, you discover that they are carrying a firearm or that, the, or that they're armed. You're going to run a check on them anyway, right? Because this is a this is you know probably the most common context would be a, a traffic stop, right? So you're going to get their driver's license. You're going to go back to your patrol car. You're going to run that through your database, and if they are a felon or a fugitive from the law, or they have something else on their record, warrants, for instance, bam, okay, perhaps they are not a law-abiding citizen, therefore not able to exercise their Second Amendment right to carry that gun. Like, it's not that complicated. (laughs) So, in other words, if you run somebody's information and it comes back clean, then you assume they're law-abiding and therefore they're permitted to carry constitutionally. Right. I'm like, like, put a gun to my head and pull the trigger. Kind of like, this is the the mindless brainless analysis here done by our deputy chief, Chuck McMichael, the Greenfield police department just blows my mind. 
Yeah. Well, and this is one of those things, never, you know, like never assume that the police are in favor of you having, you know, certain freedoms or that they're necessarily against or a Republican is for guns. And I mean, like there are snakes in the grass. There are people that just don't think that you have the right to own a firearm even if you passed a background check to purchase the firearm and you're not doing anything illegal other than making maybe a right turn on red when you can't. And they think that they should be able to, you know, it's just to me, uh, this is one of those things. So I think it's, it, it, and, and you mentioned it earlier. Um, if you're in Indiana, uh, be engaged in, the legislative process i'm right now i'm in ohio i didn't cover the story but you know we had a a, a constitutional carry bill pass the house and the senate and now they're trying to uh tie this up before they can get a, a ratified or a, a reconciled bill to put to the governor and they're trying to delay this till past the primaries and and all this and and so and we have a pretty strong republican legit state legislature so Wherever you are, whatever state you're listening in right now, fight, you know, legislatively uh, the good fight because these guys need to be held accountable. You, you don't let them off the hook. Yeah. Yep. 100%. Let's go now to California. We actually have several stories from California. One here, this first one uh, from San Jose, uh, published on thereload.com. Uh, the title is San Jose passes mandatory insurance slash annual fee for gun owners. We, I think we talked about this being, uh, I think when we covered this before, I believe it was in the context of, Hey, they're talking about doing this. And apparently now that's been passed. So why don't you give us uh, the skinny on this? Uh, This is a more of a local uh, legislation or, or ordinance, but uh, tell, tell us more about the San Jose deal. Yeah. And, and just just to comment on this, like wherever something's happening in one city or community or county or whatever, somebody else is looking at that and saying, can we do that here, whether it's good or bad? So and this is one of those things that you don't want coming to your neighborhood or your city. Um, so basically, um, the city council passed two uh, two ordinances. One uh, would require or does require um, a an annual fee. They don't call it a tax, but it is um, for every gun owner. So you would pay uh, an annual fee tax. And the other one is that you would be required to carry insurance if you have a gun. Um, these things passed. Um, I believe one of them passed. Uh, I, I I can't. I don't remember the swing of votes, but uh, pretty overwhelmingly. Even though uh, that it seemed like most of the uh, people were not in favor of this, uh, they passed it. So, um, he, and 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 when this passed, this was January twenty sixth uh, is the date of the article. So it, it passed. Um, of course, once there was celebration that it passed, there were some actual comments made by um, by the mayor uh, who orchestrated this and really exposed what this was all about. Um, I don't know if you you want to touch on that, his comments, but it underlines exactly what you're thinking and what we were thinking when this first uh, when we first you know spoke about this. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, so I have I have a couple concerns here. Um, number one is that they currently estimate that this annual fee would be twenty five to thirty five dollars, and the number one concern there is that well, at any time they could just decide to raise the fee, right, in an effort to just further restrict uh, the ability for people to own guns in their in their mm-hmm. jurisdiction. Uh, that that just becomes a, a gun control, uh, you know, scheme is what mm-hmm. that is, and in fact. What you're referring to, Matthew, is this is a follow-up to this to this story we just covered, and you wrote this on uh, California.concealedcarry.com, uh, the title here being Mayor Admits Gun Confiscation, the Purpose of New Gun Laws. And just so folks know, in case you're new to the podcast or you forget, but uh, we do make an effort to make sure that all the stories we talk about, and even sometimes some extra bonus ones that we just aren't able to cover, are published to the show notes of of these episodes when we when we cover this this stuff. So you can always go to the show notes of the episode. At the very least, you go to the web, to our website, concealedcarry.com, and uh I know that you might be within your uh, your podcast player app or whatever, and they usually have a way to access show notes there too. But you can go to our website, get the show notes, and follow all these same links and, and read this stuff for yourselves. But uh, the the mayor here uh, basically <laughs> the after the ordinance passed. I'm quoting from your article, Matthew. The architect of the gun control plan, San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo, said, "This won't stop mass shootings and keep bad people from committing violent crime." Oh, really? That's interesting. I thought that was kind of, I thought that was the advertised uh, (laughs) purpose, right? And then he made the other following statements uh, for a post published on the website Slate, which is not a very gun-friendly website, uh, that said, Encountering people with guns out in the street in bars and nightclubs, you can imagine a host of different venues where a police officer would really like to have the ability to remove a gun from a potentially combustible situation. For example, there's a bar brawl and they're patting out down everybody and somebody's got a gun. Have you paid your fee? Do you have insurance? No. Okay. Well, there's an opportunity for us to remove the gun. And then when the gun owner comes back and demonstrates that they comply with the law and they're a lawful, lawful gun owner, then they get their gun back. But in the meantime, you've taken a gun out of a bar brawl and that's not a bad thing. So admitted, we're admitting here that this is all about, uh, well, it's not about safety. It's not about preventing mass shootings or in, in crime necessarily. It's more about giving the local government here the power to confiscate things on a whim. So there you have it. Yeah. Yeah. There's other tools um, that they could use other than that. Right. Like the, the this example he gives is, is it total red herring? Like, the, Oh yeah. It, it, right. So this is, this is to infuriate gun owners, to frustrate them, to make it difficult for them to monetarily punish them in all kinds of, uh, all kinds of ways. And, uh, and so they can take guns away from people. Um, and so this is, this is what we know. And when anybody tells you, you know, Hey, this gun law is for public safety. No, it's not. <laughs> You're lying. <laughs> we know because yep. you tell us so after it's passed. Yep. Also, uh, another story from California here, also on the reload.com federal judge denies effort to block California from sharing gun owners, personal information. And this is and this is unfortunate. We talked about this one before as well a little bit, and how this was a possibility. Um, that at least as far as what what happened here is that uh, the state decided to release 
personal gun ownership information to what was the the phrase it used to describe it? Was, it, it listed some organizations and then basically said any like any research organization that wants the information. And I remember asking the question on the show of like, what is what what's the standard here for determining that you are a a, a legitimate research organization, mm-hmm. right? Bonafide research because institute. I, I I'm sorry based on the way that was worded and based on the fact that it's just the government in general and general governmental incompetence that exists uh, with such things that I I don't believe that (laughs) that there would be a very good uh, chain of custody of this information. Uh, So essentially it's only a matter of time before in the public sphere, this information, which contains personal information, names and locations, addresses, etc., of people and gun purchases that they have made will be out there in the public domain. And that is concerning. I don't understand that the, the purpose here supposedly is for gathering statistical data for research purposes and studies and whatnot. I don't understand then what the purpose is of having names and addresses associated with that data. Seriously, what's the point? Like, if you want to have general geographical information, like, because you, you know, but you can limit that down to, say, a a city or a county, but you don't have to have a name and a specific address attached to it. Exactly. And still have that that data be valid. And so there was a, a temporary restraining order that uh, uh, was applied for to the courts and U.S. District Judge Larry Allen Burns denied that request. So these people are concerned that their personal information is going to be put out there and it likely will. And that's concerning because now you might, there might be this database out there for Californians that anybody can go out there and eventually find. And all it takes is for it to even be on the dark web, frankly. And next thing you know, you got criminals that are showing up your doorstep to steal your guns. Yeah. And, and all kinds of nefarious stuff. Right. And and I, I think for some people, this might not be, you know, known, but for states like California that have a registry, they have a registry that um, has all your information and all the guns you own and all the guns your wife owns and in all that. Right. Like um, that's that's scary because. You know, like you said, there's no reason if you're doing statistical research of that you need to know the name or the address or uh, specifics like that. And that's all the information that th- these universities are getting. I mean, come on, this, you know, there's data breaches all the time within government sites, right? Like, so mm-hmm. uh, it, it is concerning. It is concerning if you value uh, any sort of privacy. And sure, you know, that information may be, you know, out there. Somebody said about, you know, people posting pictures on Facebook and things like that. That's their personal preference to do that. Um, but it's different if, you know, I don't post pictures of my guns on on a website, but still my information can be shared. So it's personal privacy and in 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 uh and when it comes to firearms, man, like people are very, very protective about that. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. Yeah. Yeah. As uh, someone on YouTube here, I know who it is, but I'm not going to necessarily throw their name out there. But uh, as they said here, robbery list, right? <laughs> uh, and that's that's basically what it is or what yeah. it could amount to. So very concerning. Um, 
And it's not that such information hasn't gotten leaked out to the public before either. Uh, but like, why, why are we making effort to make it even easier? That's what I don't yeah. understand here. Like actually having a process for releasing that information. I don't understand it. Yeah. Going now to KIRO seven, Kiro seven.com, uh, channel seven news affiliate in, uh, uh, Olympia, Washington area. Well, this is, I'm assuming actually it's probably like in Seattle, but, uh, Oh, but the story is coming out of Olympia, which, of course, is the state capital of Washington State, where all the legislative things happen. And the story here is that a Senate is that the Washington State Senate passes bill banning sale of high capacity firearm magazines. And now this bill goes to the House. Uh, this is a bill that had this is like the sixth time, I believe, that, that, that this has been pushed by the state attorney general uh his name by the way is uh bob ferguson state attorney general bob ferguson has yep says this is the sixth session he's proposed this legislation and uh, uh you got senator marco leas uh he he sponsored this bill at the state attorney general's request here's what leas has to say about this bill the data are clear States that have limited the sale of high-capacity magazines to 10 rounds have achieved significant improvements in public safety. I'd like to know what data he's referring to because I am not aware of any that suggests any sort of correlation or causation, but even correlation. No, I I can't think of anything that would suggest that's true. Um, And then he also said the only other... Oh, he's referring to this, this shooting that happened in, in I think this is a town in, in Washington, McKiltio. Uh, I'm sure I'm butchering that name. Back in 2016, three people were killed. He says the only reason the other young people were able to get to safety that night was because the mass shooter needed to reload his weapon. So this is the common argument that's made is that we need to have high capacity magazine bans because uh, mass shooters by and large use high capacity magazines uh, which there, there's probably some truth to that. It's also not universally true either. Uh, interestingly enough, the, the more popular, more recent example would be the Parkland uh, high school shooter that for whatever reason used 20 round mags. And I know that some people would still consider that to be high capacity, whatever, but he used 20 rounders instead of he could have used 30 rounders or whatever size he wanted. And he didn't, and it didn't really seem to make much difference there. So anyway, um, this is the common argument, though, that we'll save lives by forcing shooters to reload. Now, why, again, do we believe that criminals will comply with such statutes? That, that's the first question to be asked here. And number two, th- this doesn't have any bearing on the fact that uh, a reload really doesn't take much time at all now it can it can make a difference i i'm not going to deny that but it also i mean a reload can take what one to two seconds someone that's not skilled at all might take five okay all right fine now i know that some people on the other side of the spectrum might use my words against me and say well if a reload doesn't take that long then why are you so concerned about you know why are you concerned about it why why are 10 round mags an issue um, well, because we have to err on the side of caution here with respect to law-abiding people. We're going to place a burden upon law-abiding law citizens. And 
we have to actually we have to if if there's a case to be made and there's federal court precedents for this, uh, we have to follow a pretty strict standard in this respect with ter- in terms of evaluating and balancing the burden placed upon gun owners with public safety. Mm-hmm. And so that that's number one. Like my response to that is that this puts a burden upon us because now you limit our choices as far as what magazines we can stick in our guns. That also limits a lot of times the guns that can be purchased. Not every manufacturer makes magazines that are uh, compat- compat- compatible with certain uh, uh, round count limits. And I'll say this much: like one thing you don't see a lot of here in Colorado since we passed the mag capacity limit of 15 rounds back in 2013 you don't see a lot of uh glock 17s glock 34s uh uh full-size sig p320 pistols i mean you do you just don't see as many of those as you see the 15 round variants of those guns glock 19s way more popular than glock 17s uh full-size or a mid-size or the compact versions of p320s way more common on the store shelves than than the uh, full-size variants are. Why? Well, because they have 15-round magazines made for those gun designs. Uh, and if I went to the bigger gun, I'd have to go down to a 10-round mag mm-hmm. because that's the standard offering. And so it, it limits my choices of the gun a lot of times that, I, that I'm able to purchase just off of the store shelves. So... Um, so there's a, in other words, there's a significant burden that's placed on people. And there is a case to be made of the fact that we, we choose an arbitrary number, like say 10 rounds or 15 in the case of Colorado. And we say, oh, this is, this is acceptable below this number, but above that's not. And, and that's purely an arbitrary number. Somebody mm-hmm. pulled it out of their butt and said, yeah, we're going to go with this. That sounds, that sounds good. And the problem I have with 10 rounds is that it is kind of right at that threshold where for most incidents, 10 rounds is probably adequate for a self-defense situation, but we certainly do encounter situations where more than 10 rounds were required. And that's, you know, that that, it's kind of, it's, it rides that line and I don't like that. I'd like to have a little more of a buffer. Here's the other thing. This is freaking America, and if the cops on the streets and the military personnel protecting my nation have stuff that I can't have as, an, as a law-abiding free citizen, then that just makes me ornery. So there you go, in your <laughs> well, face. Well, even beyond ornery, man, like, why, why, would it, why would a police officer carry a magazine of over 10 rounds? Yep. Like, they could articulate that very easily, like, oh, well, you know, if I get into a shootout with somebody, I, I, I need more than 10 rounds. Well, I, we're not police officers and we don't engage in the same exact uh, incidents that they would, but we still have the ability to be involved in a gun, a, a shootout and need more than 10 rounds. So the same, the same argument it, it, it applies. And so, you know, it, it's just right now it's 15 rounds and 10 rounds in if, if the whole country would shift to that. In five years, you'd see it go to three rounds and eight rounds. Like all it is, is just moving it and conditioning somebody to say, oh, because look at how much we've been conditioned to say, well, an 18 year old, they shouldn't be able to have a handgun, but they can have a long gun just because of why. What's the difference? We've been conditioned to accept that. And now finally, people are waking up and saying, wait a second, why can't an 18 year old have a concealed carry license 
but they can buy a shotgun and go hunting. What, what, why do they have to be 21? What's the difference between, between that? Well, well, that's just how it's been done. Well, it's just a slow, gradual decline. And this is exactly the, the battle of attrition that the gun control people are so good at. They are good at continuing it and we give in little by little and uh and before you know it we got three round magazines and those are considered high capacity yeah yep (laughs) well and that's what new york tried to do too right is like yeah they 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 tried to make it seven round mags in new york and people were like well there's nothing like that that exists except for in the case of 45 caliber 1911s with (laughs) standard like old school mags because now most of your standard 1911 mags are eight rounds instead of seven and then new york's like well um you can have 10 round capacity mags but you can only stick seven rounds in them like (laughs) what what insanity like like what what world do we live in and and (laughs) why do we think i mean here's the thing legislators know that law-abiding folks will comply because by nature they're law-abiding you know by and large and uh, and so it's purely politics, and uh, you know, as Christie says here, a bunch of straw man arguments, and they just know that hey, we we can limit and hinder you law abiding citizens, and you'll go along with it because because you will. But it does absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of reducing deaths and gun violence. There's way bigger problems than magazine capacity. But here's the thing: this bill was passed through the Washington State Senate like that um from the time i heard about it to the time it was passed it was a done deal in like a day okay so uh maybe some local folks there with their ear to the ground had a little bit more of a heads up but this happened super quick and that that was very concerning to me and that's why we're we're talking about this stuff here today and telling you like you need to be paying close attention to what your legislators are doing during this legislative session because this happened super quick and man, I hope this gets killed in the house. And folks, if you're in Washington State, by golly, you better be mobilizing right now and getting activated uh, to uh, fight against this and let let your House of Representatives folks know like this is this is going to end poorly for them politically uh, if they pass this through the House. All right, Washington, you don't want to go where we and other states like Colorado, California, New York, et cetera, have gone with this stuff. It's made zero difference. <laughs> you can look at the crime stats right now for Colorado. Uh, it's not made a dang bit of difference. All right. All right. Got to wrap this up. Uh, one other thing out of Washington State, the House there passed a bill. So the last one we just talked about, the magazine capacity limit, was passed through the Senate. This bill was passed through the House and is going to the Senate, and this is an anti-gun or anti-ghost gun bill. All right, so they want to make illegal uh, uh, so-called ghost guns or home-manufactured firearms, which, by the way, is an age-old, centuries-old practice. All right, uh, to manufacture your your own firearms for your own personal use and enjoyment, and even personal defense, is completely legal under federal law. All right. Of course, they want to change that federally, too. Uh, but here in the state of Washington, they want to make that. Yeah, no, no, no more homemade guns in Washington state. OK, 
So heads up there, folks, you need to let your senators know your opinions about this legislation in the state of Washington. Right on. And the final thing is out of the state of Michigan. And this is brought to my attention by Christy Bass, a friend of mine, instructor out up there in Michigan. Uh, and so I went online this morning and pulled up some, some articles about this. But uh, they are pushing in Michigan for a uh, mandatory gun storage bill, uh, and uh, which is something we had passed here in Colorado last year, which was unfortunate um, because, again, what what they say here is this could have prevented the the Oxford High School shooting tragedy, quoting one of the uh, spokespersons that's in this article here. Um, it maybe could have, but it might not have either. All right. So uh, the problem with mandatory st- storage bills is they don't usually come into play until after the fact. It's only after the fact that we realize oh, somebody got a hold of a gun that shouldn't have gotten a hold of that gun. How'd they do that? Oh, well, it wasn't stored properly, okay? You know, like, well, then the, the law didn't do anything, <laughs> right? right? Now, it will encourage some people to, because, they'll again, they'll take the attitude of, well, I'm law-abiding, and I don't want to get in trouble, and so I will properly, you know, store my gun because the state of Michigan told me to do so, uh, which, by the way, is common sense anyway. Like, I, we advocate proper, safe, uh, practices and storage here, the kids will carry podcast, but at the same time, this is America, yo. Yeah. You know, it, and, it, and this does, I'm sorry to say in the, in the grand scheme of things does nothing to uh, make a significant dent in violence and crime. Yeah. It, it, and if I could just add in, if you need a law to tell you, Hey, you should lock up your gun because you have a small child in your house or you have somebody who is mentally, you know, has a mental illness or depression or signs of suicide or something. And you need a law to tell you to lock it up. And that's the motivation and not the motivation to protect your family and and, and what they may do. Um, I, I think that you need to reevaluate your your decision-making process or however you run that through your filters. Um, Absolutely. You know, so do the right thing. You don't need a law to tell you to do the right thing. And yeah. Well, and, and that's, a, and that's what gets so gets me so riled up is that this should be a personal choice and a personal decision um, that uh, people can understand the circumstances, their own circumstances and make the best decisions for them. How many stories have we shared over the years where, juveniles used firearms to defend themselves while they were say home alone or even sometimes defended their family, including their parents. Mm-hmm. We've covered a number of stories like that over the years. One of them that's most notable to me, that comes to mind. I think it was like a 12 or 14 year old boy that had access to a 22 rifle and had thugs break into their home. He defended his sister in a closet of their home with his 22 rifle. Yeah. All right. I grew up in a generation where it was perfectly acceptable for 14, 15, 16 year olds, certainly to have a 22 rifle, just like when you were 10 and 12, you had a BB gun, you know, it's just a natural progression of, you know, a rite of passage, so to speak. And these arbitrary measures then all of a sudden say, no, any firearm, somebody under the age of 18 should not have access to. Well, who are you to make that decision for me and my my children and my household? Maybe I want my child and I trust my child to be able to make, you know, I make that decision and give them 
at least an option that occasionally the 15 year old is at home alone. Like I want him to be able to defend himself. Mm-hmm. That should be my decision, not the state's decision. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I know Matthew's got to go. So uh, that's that's the end of our stories today, guys. Again, there's a lot more stuff going on here on a na- nationwide and on, at each of your d- individual state levels. You need to be paying attention. Please, please, please be active in your political process uh, to, uh, to, to stand up for the Second Amendment. All right. Before we let you go, we do need to uh, announce our weekly podcast prize winner. Uh, we do the podcast giveaway each week. That that entry resets every Monday. So you want to make sure you're signing up each week by going to concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize. Matthew, tell us what we're giving away next week. And then tell us who our winner of this last week's prize is and what that prize was. Yeah. Next week, we're going to give a digital copy of the legal boundaries by state book. Uh, I believe we just recently updated that um, with a new, new volume or edition. So uh, you'll get that in this. And and all you got to do is enter, uh, enter each week. This week's winner is Dion and he won a barrel block. Um, so we're giving away good, good prizes, man. You guys got to get in there every week. Just enter. You can uh, share it to get an extra entry and all that. So make sure you do that, guys. Awesome. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you, brother. Um, yeah, thank folks, you. we appreciate you for being a part of this episode with us. Thanks for your support of the podcast. Don't forget to support our sponsors again today that we had uh, CCW Safe and uh, Gunfighter Gun Oil as, as our sponsors of this episode. Go to ccwsafe.com and gunfighteroil.com, respectively. And so with that, we are going to bid you adieu. And until next time, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.